A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. We could all assume that everyone will do the morally correct thing to do. You know, we could always assume that, but... We also know that if in MLB they will bang on some trash cans yes. to try to get the slightest advantage. Yeah. You mean to tell me that when it comes to betting and all this money that's going to be flying around, this is a billion, a multi-billion dollar business. I just think there's a yeah, lot there's- of conflicts of interest here. That's all I'm going to say. There's a lot going on. People are going to push it. Because that's the nature of competition. How far will they take that's it? That's the nature of it. You you want to see how far you can push it to win whatever you're trying to win. And that's the danger of this. Renee, just last week, it was reported by Bill King of the Sports Business Journal that the NFL has decided to allow six sport book commercials per game, per game, on their game broadcasts. Also, some breaking news that came out today. Jay-Z and Philadelphia 76ers co-owner Michael Rubin are part of a group applying for an online sports betting license in New York and a plan to form a Fanatics Sportsbook. We know the sentiment on betting has drastically changed over the last few years and leagues are always looking for new revenue streams. From a sports perspective, though, as betting becomes more widespread, what effect does this have just on the players, on the coaches, on anybody? Because this is, we were talking about this in the pre-pro. It was not that long ago. I want to say like eight, 10 years ago where you didn't talk about it. Like in, in, in professional sports circles, it was taboo to talk about gambling in any kind of way. And now it's just here. It's just here. It's in your face. It is part of, it is part of the economic model. It's here. Well, Jason, how much will it change it? See, this is the thing. It's kind of like name, image, and likeness is here now for athletes, right, in college. But we know that athletes was making money before name, image, and likeness. Some of them have gotten caught. It's been publicized. So we know that things were happening before people allowed it to be legal, let's say. So sports betting, you're right. For me as a player, even when I hear sports betting, like I cringe a little bit in a sense of like it's almost so taboo that I don't I don't want no parts of it. I don't want no problems because that as an athlete, you think like, oh, no, I don't want to hear nothing about no betting. I don't want no trouble because you don't want to be the reason your team or anything. It's almost like a a taboo, like you said, non-starter. But now that sports is so easily reachable and it's right here in your lap. We already knew that there were things happening in sports involving betting, you know, and we can always assume. I don't, it's almost like the tennis with the coaches. It's like, you're not supposed to coach from the sidelines, but we knew everybody was doing a little bit of coaching from the sidelines, so you allow it. I'm not saying that players would be ones that are going to be tipping games. I don't think it's going to get to that because any player playing, there's this certain level of competitiveness that I just don't see that affecting the integrity of the game. Now, Having said that, now, (laughs) having said all of that, I do think that it's going to get very interesting when somebody's homie that lives with them is like, yo, what happened in shoot around today? And 
they take so and so injured are they gonna play like that kind of thing and they start to take those little nuggets and they start to make some bets and then they start to make bigger bets and then maybe somebody reaches out to that friend and says hey i know you're connected to xyz what do you know about this team and then that friend that you think you're just talking to casually on the couch, like, oh, man, yeah, I, you know, so-and-so's not going to play because he hurt his ankle. So, I mean, yep. nobody really knows that, but he's not playing. And so we're probably going to lose tonight. You could just say that to your friend casually that said yep. that to a sports betting person. And then your friend could be the connection to the better that is constantly giving them leads. Only reason I say that is because sports betting and integrity, it's like there's levels to it. The, the friction is built into it. <laughs> like it is, this is a, you know, this is an activity that is in some way predicated on a better's knowledge of the sport, the information they have about the yes. sport, their understanding of which players are good and which players play well on the road, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And <laughs> with it being so accessible, I mean, you laid out, you laid out a a situation that I don't have any information, but I'm a hundred percent sure that is happening on some level somewhere. Oh yeah. Come on. Where like either somebody, you know, you, you're friends with a player or you're friends with an assistant coach who says something, Oh, so-and-so may not play. You know, they tweak their uh, hamstring in in practice today. And maybe the lines haven't, you know, the betting lines haven't, uh, haven't reflected that reality yet. The news hasn't got out. And what would you do? I know what I would do. I would go Uh, immediately. Right. That's what you would do. And so what does the NFL, what does MLB, what does the NBA, what does the W, how do they, the thing that I keep thinking about is how do they, make sure that this activity doesn't rise to a level where it actually does affect affect, the game, affect the honesty, the on the levelness of the actual competition. Um, And I don't know that I trust the individual leagues to do that. Like, I think you need, I think you need some sort of third party investigator that looks at betting lines that looks at uh, patterns in the way bets are placed, the way the lines move and keeps an eye on that. Because I think the incentive for the actual leagues to be transparent about the stuff they find is just kind of not there. That's the everything to that. Like this is a nice revenue stream. Okay. But a nice revenue stream. It's a what? nice, it's a nice, nice revenue stream. But the authenticity of the competition is like the entire product, right? So if yes. you have something from your nice revenue stream that threatens the entirety of your product, listen, you're not gonna want to tell people about it. You're just not I'm gonna, gonna tell want you right to now, tell people about Jason. It. You said a nice revenue stream. This is a billion dollar. It's a, it's a business. real nice revenue stream. This is a billion dollar business. So that's why, you know, some people thought that sports betting would have never made it to this legal, transparent level. But anything that makes a lot of money, they're going to figure out a way to do it. Like mm-hmm. in sports betting, there was so much money being had that the leagues weren't getting. That Just so to your point, the leagues weren't getting in on any of this money when it first started happening. So now all the sports leagues are like, we want a part of the action too, in a sense of, yeah, now they can sell 
18 spots across a full Sunday of games. You know, that's roughly 30 or 40, like for every 30 or 40 minutes, they can sell a spot. Now you start to see the revenue coming in. And to that point, Jason, you're not going to stop your own pockets. Like if if you're starting to see. No, 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 no. No one's going to do that. that, No one's going to do that. No one. No one's going to do that. So then you start to get to what you're talking about. Well, then who is actually going to police the sports betting? Right now, it's kind of like, no one. And if you look at the NFL, the New York Giants, as far as sportsbook deals, they have DraftKings. The Jets have BetMGM. The Eagles have DraftKings and Fox Bet. Like you go down the line, yeah. there's teams connected, and it's the same in the NBA. The Pacers have points bet and DraftKings. WNBA yep. just did a deal with points bet for the whole league. So you can just see it trending a certain way. Now, how far are we going to take it is the question. Because, no, I don't think that players are going to be missing shots on purpose. No one's doing that. But it could get interesting if a player knows that a line is 10 points and they just casually not hit that 11th point. That's interesting. Do I think that's going to happen? No. I think that's an extreme. But I do think the more and more money that starts to be on the line, that's when you start to see more and more activities. I'll just say that. And and it's, it yes. could get tricky. And listen, this is a great, this is a great, in terms of the economics, for the sports league, this is a great, this is a great business. This is essentially free money. Yeah. Like you're taking a skim, you're taking a percentage of like bets that are placed um, and it's, legitimately free money that you don't have to do much with. Like you're allowing these, you're allowing access to these platforms. That's really it. Like this exists. It's been happening. It's an activity that people want to take part in. Gambling is not going to go away. It's been illegal in parts of the country for a long time. It's not stopped anybody from doing it. Um, People aren't going to stop doing it. Um, But man, it is still, it is still jarring when I think about like, Pete Rose banned from baseball and Tim Donahue and the speed with which he was ejected from professional basketball and then nothing. So nobody else has been betting this whole time. There's been nothing. You know what I mean? Like it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it just feels like, okay, somebody else needs to look at this in a way that ensures that everything is on the up and up. Cause I listen, I don't think that players would necessarily out and out fix games, no. but they're not going to put the W like in at risk. That said, if I got if the game is locked up in the fourth quarter, feel like everything is in hand. You can tell the other team is is not is not trying to to close the gap anymore. And the difference between making the spread or not or 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 not making the spread is like missing a free throw. And a player knows about it. Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? Like that's, and I don't know how you. Yeah. To your point, Jason, like for instance, what if I'm your homie, right? And I'm like, Jason, good luck tonight, but make sure y'all win by 10. That's all I'm saying. I ain't saying nothing else. I'm just saying, Jason. say that on the air. Make sure you. Yeah. Yeah. Like announcers, you know, Al Al Michaels says it every time there's a football (laughs) game, you know? So I'm just saying like, what if like. What if I heard you? What if you're like, yeah. heard you, Renee? Yeah. And you don't, and, and then y'all just made, you just casually won by 10. And what if you were up by nine, Jason, and right. it's like three, two, and you shoot that just to see if you could get up by 10, just so you could, like, told yeah. you I'd get over by that, like those little things to where you're not even realizing it, but it's like you could have accidentally 
hit, hit the spread because I told you, yeah, make sure you win by 10 for my, for your girl. Like, Jason, make sure y'all get 10. And then you shoot that last shot to make it 11. It's like, oh, well, that's interesting. And what yeah. if your friend just every game was like, all right, bet yeah. you won't win by 15 next game. Right? Bet you won't, Jason. And then it just starts to be a thing where it's like, oh, man, we could beat them by 15. And it's yeah. there's so many levels to where I can there's see. so many levels. Money, when money is involved, we've seen the best of things turn into the worst of things when money oh, is yeah, involved. For sure. And I'm not saying that sports is going to be one of those things that goes sour, but I'm saying the more money that gets applied and the more pressure that gets applied, there needs to be some type of system, some policing, because this could get wild in a hurry. Yeah, it's and it's where it's where the line is drawn to, because like the thing we just described, nobody's you can't go after that. And it's pointless to be like, you know, because right. a friend had some information. Where is the when it grows more than that? Where exactly do you say, OK, no, no more farther than this. You cannot do more than this. Uh, and that's like what if what that the, friend joins a group chat that is a group yes. chat full of betters? Let's and say. it's just them talking about that now. OK, now <laughs> there's an issue. And that's that's the thing these leagues are going to have to deal with. I mean, I, I, it's, I forget who said this, uh, but there is, there's a quote uh, from like French literature. It's like behind every fortune, a crime. I think that, yes, you know, it's like, there is almost no way to make a significant amount of money without pushing the envelope a few times. Like I, basically that's what innovation is, right? Is like, hey, nobody has really made the rules for this part of it yet, right? Like nobody's really figured out if this is legit or not legit. So let's just go Facts. here. And if we uh, make some money here, it will become legitimate, even though we're not sure that it is. And that's a lot of what is going on here in this extremely new fusion of legalized sports gambling and actual leagues. It's crazy. Um, I mean, that's the thing with... Big agencies today, there are a lot of conflicts of interest because um, agencies like corporations are now representing like people from both sides of it. You know, yeah. like this is a thing that happened in TV recently where um, agencies are representing writers who are pitching shows, but then they are also representing the producers in the studios. So they're representing 100%. both sides of the of the of the debate of the negotiation and so there was a lot of confusion about which side is taking priority which side's interests are being advanced and i think that's part of this is like trying to untangle that on the like if you just cut down to the to the basic idea of if people are making money off of athletes vis-a-vis -vis gambling it'd be great if the athletes also made some of that money. I agree with that. But yes, yeah. the conflict of interest on top of that and figuring out exactly where that line is is really confusing and it's being laid out right now. Like, I'm not sure, even if they come, whatever framework gets hammered out in the next year, two years, five years, it may not be the thing that goes on that's, that is the framework 10 years after that. Like, a lot. this is just all so new. You know, it's interesting, too, because when you talk about a Jay-Z, the Philadelphia 76ers owner, Michael Rubin, it's so crazy because you talked about that, that conflict of interest. It's where do you draw the line? Look, I've been a part of negotiations where, yes, the person negotiating for me was also negotiating for the company that we're trying to do business with. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, 
when when you I hold on her, when you <laughs> when you say we are you talking about us or are you talking yeah, about like, the we on. and y'all yeah. and so i see that there's going to be a lot of that going on look we could all assume that everyone will do the morally correct thing to do you know we could always assume that but we also know that if in MLB they will bang on some trash cans yes. to try to get the slightest advantage or if people in sports we know that people will take illegal substances, risk getting caught yeah. to try to get that little advantage. You mean to tell me that when it comes to betting and all this money that's going to be flying around, this is a billion, a multi-billion dollar business. I just think there's a yeah, lot there's- of conflicts of interest here. That's all I'm going to say. There's a lot going on. I was watching uh, the Great British Bake Off last night and it was the finals. <laughs> and there was there's a there's a contestant <laughs> who is very good, but Every time they're like, and that is time. No more doing stuff to your cake. He is always like putting a little more powdered sugar on it, like putting another berry on the thing, finishing the glaze like 10, 20, 30 seconds after the thing. And he does it every time. And that's kind of like what we're talking about is like, unless somebody steps in and says, stop that. Don't do that. People are going to push it because that's the nature of competition. That's the nature of it. You you want to see how far you can push it to win whatever you're trying to win. And that's the danger of this. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. In MMA news... Fighter Cheyenne Bays recently defeated Gloria DePaula with a, a a brutal head kick at UFC Vegas 33. I was just telling Renee, I never want to get kicked in the head for no amount of money. <laughs> After the match, she was given a $50,000 performance of the night bonus, uh, rules of which were recently uh, changed by the UFC. Here's what she said after being asked about what that money means to her and her personal life. I am negative in my account right now, so... It's going to make a big difference. And my whole paycheck actually is I have to pay back $15,000 for a loan I got um, from a few people. So, you know, I made 10 and 10 from my win and my win and show. So that 20,000 was just gone. So, and I was okay with it. I was okay if I won and that check was gone. Cause I made the, I made the move out here and I knew that this fight was just going to be for the move, but it was the best decision me and my husband made for our careers. And just to get that bonus, I've been so broke my whole life because of this sport, but it's so worth it to me. 
Now, there's a lot of discussion around this particular story, specifically on how the UFC compensates its fighters to dive into this. We're joined by a senior writer covering combat sports for The Athletic and the co-host of the co-main event podcast, Ben Folks. Ben, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, I'm curious because we've seen a lot of glow up stories that get glorified. Like you look at a Conor McGregor. He talked about how he struggled for so long before that big fight. And we've heard that same story rinse and repeat over and over. Is this sport fueled by the idea of basically you train, you grind it out, you leverage your future to pretty much make it big? Is that kind of the storyline of this sport? More or less. It's not the kind of sport where, like if you're in the NFL and you're the 20th best tight end in the league, you're a millionaire and you're a sports star. Pro fighting doesn't work that way. If you're the 20th best welterweight in the world, you might have a day job. And that's just the way the pay structure is set up. It's it's very much, uh, I've heard it described uh, sort of like a tournament theory model where to the absolute best, the people who are going to go on and be the the champions and the big draws, there's a lot of money. But it doesn't mean that there is you know just a little bit stepped down from a lot of money for everybody else. The, the, the difference between the top and the people slugging it out in the mid-tier is vast when it comes to pay. Um, Dana White uh, is kind of famous for knowing everything about the fighters that take part in his fights. Um, the performance of the night bonus and other bonuses like it, the way they are decided is pretty opaque. How much of those kind of bonuses and awards are just strategic moves by Dana because he wants to center a fighter and has particular plans for them? And how much of it is like, how is that exactly decided? Yeah, it is pretty opaque with the exception that if you miss weight, you can't get one. So that takes some people off the list right away. You know, I've seen breakdowns and analyses. Uh, A guy named Reed Kuhn, who is an economist, did a, a look at how likely you are to win a performance of the night bonus based on your position on the card. Because that $50,000 bonus means a whole lot to people yeah. on the prelims, people like Cheyenne Bays, who was sort of promoted into the co-main event for this event that, that where she won a bonus based on other fights falling out. She was lower down on the card and she got bumped up when other fights got canceled. And if you're on the prelims, you've either got to do something really spectacular or you've got to hope that nobody else does something all that spectacular right. in order for you to get that bonus. And that 50 grand makes a big difference to those people, especially if you're fighting for 10 and 10 or 20 and 20, you know, uh, 50 grand is going to be the biggest paycheck you get all year. And yet the bonuses typically go to the people near the top of the card, main event fighters, people in the co-main event, you know, those last few fights, they disproportionately get the performance of the night bonuses uh, in actuality. And, you know, sometimes it, it can be sort of an easy call. You see one great fight and not a whole lot of other great fights on the card. Mm-hmm. Those people are usually going to get fight of the night and it's, and it's kind of a given. And then the other times, you know, there'll be people who have great knockouts, great finishes, great submissions, and they don't get a bonus just because somebody else gets it instead, maybe a bigger name, maybe a, a slightly more memorable finish. And and that's just kind of how it goes. And I mean, they they have changed that in the years because it used to be there was one for fight of the night, there was one for submission of the night, and there was one for knockout of the night. And you might have the only submission on the card, and then it's kind of guaranteed yours, or you might have the only knockout, and then it's yours. Uh, now that they change it to performance of the night, I think so that they don't seem to be incentivizing knockouts so much, right. because that, that could be a potential liability if somebody <laughs> yeah. brings, a, brings a brain damage uh, lawsuit against you in the future. Now it's a little bit harder to tell exactly how it's going to go. 
So it's interesting because they changed it to kind of for media purposes, you would think, so that it's received better. Performance of the night instead of knockout of the night. And we saw a lot of those outlets use the sound of Cheyenne's interview as almost this heartfelt sentiment about overcoming financial obstacles. But you have a more comprehensive view of this. So can you just talk a little bit about Cheyenne's bonus in the context of what the UFC makes? Right. Well, we tend to do that a lot in the MMA media where somebody talks about, hey, I was living on ramen and I got this bonus and and it changed my life. And we go, what a feel good story. And it's kind of like, you know, when kids are having a bake sale to get their mom uh, cancer treatment and you go, okay, it's a feel good story in a way, but also because of a reality that is sort of horrifying. And I've heard it from a bunch of fighters over the years. That $50,000 figure has not changed much in years and years, by the way. It has not really <laughs> been adjusted for inflation. Every once in a while, they'll bump it up for a big event to maybe 75. But I, you know, I was sitting there 10 years ago, I remember people telling me about I was living on rice and ketchup and I got the yeah. $50,000 check and it was a, a big deal for me. But also, it's like when you look at the UFC now, uh, the UFC made over $800 million in revenue last year. It, it's probably going to break a billion here in the next couple of years. And they're in this sort of spot where they're trying to tell us somebody like Cheyenne Bays, hey, if you're complaining about what she's paid, look, she's only two fights into her UFC career. She's right. she's six and two as a pro. It makes sense that people on their way up, it's a hard scrabble existence and they're still trying to prove themselves. But yet when you're selling the fight to us, the, the fans and the consumer, she's in the co-main event on ESPN, like a big, big platform. The UFC is making a ton of money for each event that it puts on as part of its ESPN deal. And so you're telling us on one hand, you know, she's not worth more of your money yet, but she is worth our attention. And so it, it creates kind of a like a weird situation where the fans can rightfully ask, look, is, is this person good or not? Do, do they yeah. matter or not? Are they a, are they a serious pro athlete at the top of their sport or not? Because you sell them to us as if they are, but you pay them as if they're not. Yeah, I think the other part of that equation that I'd love to to get your your take on it is. Length of career. I mean, there's been a lot of numbers bandied around. You know, I've seen the average length of career from one source being like something like 35 fights total, sometimes 20-something fights, sometimes higher. Six fights is, by whatever number, by that average metric, is a significant portion into the career of, of a fighter. So on the one hand, yes, you know, you're, you're just making your way into a, into a, into a career. On the other hand, if you're only going to fight 35 fights in your career, one fight is huge. That is, that is a huge chunk of your career. So how can these fighters possibly uh, leverage their careers in order to make more money? Like what would it take and how does the UFC manage to get away with paying them so little? Well, yeah, that's a, it's kind of like a complicated answer, but I mean, the short answer to that is collective action is what they would need in order to really change their situation. They need some kind of collective bargaining. They need like an organization to speak for them. And that would take them getting together and unifying in a way that they haven't really shown any real ongoing willingness to do. That's that's one of the easiest ways that they could do it themselves. But it's tough. They're not naturally inclined to trust one another. And every time we've seen somebody try to come up with some sort of uh, unionizing effort or or collective action effort, there's always a question of what is in it for that person, if we can really trust them. And the UFC has been at times notoriously 
like vindictive against fighters who have stepped up and said, I'm not being treated well, or I don't want to sign this contract. I mean, years ago when they were trying to get everybody to sign away their rights for a video game deal and not offering anything for it, just saying, we're adding this onto the contract. You sign away your likeness rights in perpetuity. And when one of the fighters spoke up and said, "Mm, I'd like to talk about that and like, see what that is actually worth to you. They cut him. And then they said, you know, we're going to cut his teammates too. None of of those guys from that gym will fight here. And he, you know, he signed it pretty quickly after that. And wow. the UFC has gotten really used to being able to do that. And the the only other thing that seems like a realistic path to them getting a better deal out of it is right now there's an ongoing antitrust lawsuit against the UFC that it seems like the you know the class action uh, element of it is going to be certified. It's been moving forward, just creaking along slowly on the the wheels of justice for a long time now. But it does seem to be making some progress. And if that keeps going and that, that class gets certified, that could become a serious problem for the UFC. Because that's what you see in other sports is antitrust has often been the avenue toward mm. collective bargaining. And uh, that's that's one way that the, the UFC fighters could get it. But a lot of it is that they're very used to this being the way it works. They've seen this the way it works. They, they've gotten used to it. They've, they've heard this message and they've sort of accepted it. And they say like, all right, it's going to be. Uh, a really tough existence that the pay is going to be pretty bad, but I'm going to be a champion because you don't get into this kind of sport. If you don't think you can be the absolute best, there's not a real percentage in being a pretty good pro fighter. You know, it's you, you better think that you're going to be a champion and that's where the real money is. And sometimes they tell themselves like, okay, I just got to sit through this for a little while and then I'll get the belt and then it'll all be a, a gravy train. Kind of that, that thing that John Steinbeck said about there being no poor people in America, only temporarily disgraced millionaires. And that's <laughs> sort of how fighters think of themselves. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to get the belt and then it'll all be different. So, but I'm curious because, first of all, when I hear the P word perpetuity, that's terrifying. Um, so it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting that they even just said that out loud that we're using it forever to offer nothing. But I know that you did a survey of the fighters in 2020. What was their biggest issues? Like what, what are the things that bother them the most? Yeah, well, we did a, a really big wide ranging survey with my colleagues and I at the athletic and among the, the questions we asked, and we tried to get a real cross section of fighters from organizations and different countries and uh, all kinds of weight classes and everything. And when we asked what's the worst part about being a pro fighter, I think it was around 70% of them said some version of the money. And either it was just that the pay is not good enough or that the pay is not consistent enough. There's so many variables in trying to determine how you're going to be paid as an MMA fighter because you sign a deal and, you know, maybe you, you feel like you're getting a pretty good paycheck at like 50 and 50, you know, where you think, hey, I'm getting 100 grand to fight every time. I mean, if you win. You are, you know, you might go in there and feel like you did a really good job and the judges don't give it to you. You you lose a split decision and then you go home with half your paycheck. And there's also the chance that you might show up on fight week and your opponent uh, goes to the hospital during the weight cut or gets injured at the last minute, you know, the week before the fight. Or especially during uh, the pandemic, there was a whole lot of last minute COVID positives that scratched people's fights. And you might have gone into debt just getting enough resources to train for this fight. You got to train usually for six to eight weeks for training camp. A lot of them, that means, you know, they are, they're not working their day jobs during that. They got to eat specialized diets, pay their coaches, their nutritionists. Uh, Fighters go out of pocket for all those costs. It's not like the NFL where your coaches are are paid for by the team. You know, you, you have to arrange all that for yourself. And then the fight might not even happen. And maybe they'll give you the show money. If it, if it falls apart at the last minute, they don't necessarily have to, there's so many of those unknowns built into their lives. And so they've said that over and over again, you know, they love it. They love doing it, but the pay is absolutely the worst part. 
you, uh, you mentioned collective action as a as a you know the most direct route towards something like pay equity. Um, another way would be if the stars in the sport lent their support to something of this effort. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, just the structure of the sport, one-on-one competition, they're not apt to do that. Um, but you know, obviously Conor McGregor, an extremely toxic individual, is probably the most recognizable, biggest star in the UFC. Uh, Forbes has him as the highest earning athlete of 2021 above Messi, Ronaldo, LeBron James. Um, why he's, he's, one for three in his last four fights. Why is the UFC so centered still on McGregor? Uh, what is it about him that has allowed him to like elevate himself through this sport into a level of superstardom that we've not really seen in the UFC before? What what was what's the what's the secret sauce there? I think it's a few different things, man. You, you mentioned the UFC really wanting to center him, and it's because it's uh, the fight promotion business is a sales business, right. and that's that's right. what determines you know it's a, who sells pay per views, who sells tickets. Uh, the goal is you know about every eighteen inches on fight night, and who whoever brings that that crowd in, that's the guy who we're going to pay a lot of attention to. McGregor got a lot of help at least at first because he basically had an entire nation behind him. He very early on, Irish fight fans were really excited about him even before he was in the UFC. Now that's how the UFC even heard about him was Dana White going to like an event in Dublin, not even a fight related event, and people just kept asking him when are you going to sign Conor McGregor, and the UFC did something. For Conor McGregor that it doesn't do as much anymore is that they really set him up for success. Some helpful matchmaking early on, but also really putting him in the spotlight and telling people right away, this guy is a big deal. Like this guy has that star potential and you should care about him. And he did a really good job of maximizing those opportunities and you know, a lot of like great performances, great quick finishes, all that kind of stuff. And just did a really good job building a personal brand that people were into, even when it was inconsistent at times. It was just this kind of swaggering Irish superstar. Uh, I think, I mean, one thing is that uh, the fight world for a long time, it keeps loving the opportunity to find a great white hope. And Conor McGregor comes along, this, this white Irish guy, and they felt like, okay, here's a guy that we can really sell. And, you know, you mentioned him being on the Forbes list. A lot of that is not fighting money that they are are talking right. about it's there. His, that, a lot of that is liquor it's, line. It's his right. other, yeah, it's his other stuff. Yeah. And and he's done an excellent job with that. Like he and his management team at Paradigm Audiatar have done a great job with that whiskey because when I was at his his most recent fight against Dustin Poirier in Las Vegas, you see people walking around the arena wearing proper twelve whiskey merchandise wow. as if wow. it's just a Conor McGregor T shirt. You know, they're wearing the hats, they're wearing the T shirts. Like the, the brand has become, has, has been so synonymous with him that it's their way of showing support is to go out there and rep this whiskey brand. And that's something you don't, you don't see a lot of fighters have that kind of success with a sort of like a, a thing that they're branching off into on the side. Wow. Well, he's the combat sports senior writer for The Athletic. Check out his podcast, Co Main Event. Ben, thanks for joining us on Take Line. Thanks for having me. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. 
bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Dominguez going to get this last look. Uh oh. Top Ooh, of the arc. Wait a minute. A good call here on Take Line and as sports fans in general. God, we love a we love a walk-off. We love a game winner. And we love that excitement. That was our own Renee Montgomery, who is having a time, or had a time, I should say, at Summer League, aka the NBA's uh, biggest networking event for people involved with the teams, involved in the media, covering the teams, friends of players, players themselves, coaches. People trying to be coaches, trying to be shooting coaches. Uh, it's it is a fun time. I missed it, but Renee, you got to go. Um, how was it? Did you have a good time? It sounds like you had a great time. And and what players stood out for you? Oh man, I had a great time. Um, it was interesting because it was my first summer league, and just so people know, the WNBA also happens during the summer. So summer league is not something that we get to indulge in because we're usually in season. So I saw a lot of WNBA players there. Shouts to the Vegas Aces, Asia Wilson, Kelsey Plum, mm-hmm. Angel Makachi was there, and then on the NBA side. Literally every superstar was there. It was really crazy. Like at games I called, Giannis was sitting courtside, D'Angelo Russell, Kawhi, Paul George. And then I left. But then LeBron James, uh, Russell Westbrook were sitting courtside, Liz Cambage. So it was a like I like you mentioned so it. Awesome. It's a who's who event. So yeah, I never got is. to experience that. Um, and so I, I thought that was interesting. I will say that. People probably may not know this about me, but I like don't leave the house much in a sense of like, even if <laughs> even if I'm at Summer League, the chances of me hanging out with people there, just this is my saying it to everyone. I really don't do that. Just yeah. FYI. So I go to the gym and I come back to the hotel and I kind of like I work. I work a lot, but I enjoy it. Um, So I will say that I didn't have that type of fun festivities if people yeah. were wondering. I didn't even go see a show this time because... Uh, for four of the days I was there, we were I was calling two games a day. So I don't know if people yeah, know, but you, you have working. to. Yeah, I was like working, working. So I enjoyed it, though. And some players that stood out to me, I would say the two year players and the players that mm. played for the G League Ignite team. You could clearly like and I know a lot of people when they watch college sports, they're like, oh, man, he could start on any NBA team right now. But in summer league, you really get to see. The yes. players coming in that were playing yes. in college as opposed to the players that even skipped college and went to the NBA G League summer team, like the Ignite yeah. team, 
or the second year players, there was a night and day difference. There was like no comparison. So what stood out to me was what having one year of just being in the system, being with the NBA yes. coaching staff, it's a night and day difference. That's what stood out to me. But what what I mean, I know you was watching the games intently. Like what stood out to you about Summer League? Well, uh, speaking of second year players who have a year of of top level basketball under their belt coming in and showing that they have internalized some of that. Um, Obi Toppin of the of the New York Knicks, he had, uh, you know, a shaky start to his rookie season, kind of came on at the end, uh, provided some real punch off the bench uh, in the postseason as well against against the Hawks. Um, but 31 points on 13 of 20 and a 93-87 loss to the Pistons with nine rebounds, three steals, two blocks. He's just – the cool thing about Summer League is you see players just kind of trying stuff that yeah. maybe they wouldn't get a chance to try in a game where it really matters, where, you know, you're, uh, as a younger player, you can have that shorter leash. If you take a wild three or try a certain move, you might get yanked. Here in Summer League, it's like, okay, let's see, let's see how polished this move that I've been working on really is. Let's see how good that catch and shoot from the corner really is. That's what's fun. You know, you. When I, uh, years ago, when I was writing for Grantland, Zach Lowe, who is, of course, an NBA analyst and uh, pundit and on-camera person and writer at ESPN now, uh, we were at the same place. And he, I, I was at Summer League just like, I, I was writing an article about international scouts because just like there's the entire uh, American basketball ecosystem, the WNBA and the NBA, or so many figures uh, from those communities are there. There's a lot of uh, international basketball professionals who come to Summer League because there's going to be a lot of players that don't make a roster, that don't make a G League roster. Yeah. And so they're looking at those players and thinking, how do I fill out my roster? How do I find these pros that that maybe just missed out for whatever reason? And can I sign them? And then one of the things that uh, I was working on that article, and one of the things Zach told me was like, look over there. There's a, I think it was like, um, it was like Pat Riley and... Um, it was Pat Riley like sitting in the stands watching games. Like you could go up to Pat Riley right now and talk to him and like, look over That's there. There's Tony. He's like, this is what's so great about summer league is all <laughs> these people are here. And this is your chance to like network and just make connections with assistant coaches, with assistant trainers, with whoever, and just talk to people. This is how you build sources. Yeah. This is how you do that stuff. Um, I, I was not good at that part of it, but that's what's fun about summer league is just meeting people that work for teams that are like that meeting the person who's like, yeah, in 10 years, I want to be a GM, but I'm right now. Right. I just, I just put like towels in a basket. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And to that point, Jason. So my, I'm like, I'm literally, they have, they call them runners. So I'm literally with my runner and the runner is taking me from point A to point B. Cause I got to get a COVID test. I got to get my credentials. Mm -hmm. I got to get the polos. Cause we have to have our matching polo. So yes. He's yes. my runner shouts to Jace. That's my guy. He was taking me all over the place. The very first day I got there, I like bump into Jerry West, like literally wow. like Jerry West. And I'm from West Virginia. And so yes. that has a way bigger historical reverence to me because Jerry West, as we all know, is the NBA logo. But he's like the guy from West Virginia that became the NBA logo to me. So just to your point, like of you can be like it could be Pat Rally or it could even yes. be Jerry West. They're just right there, like easily accessible to me. It was almost like a 
I was on air like, wow, Giannis is just making laps around the arena. Like, yeah. this is crazy. Like, and this is like Giannis Antetokounmpo, like, just won the championship back from Greece with his brother watching his other brother's game, you know? And it's just sitting right there. And if you're a fan of the NBA, you got to put on your bucket list NBA Summer League. You have to. It's just, you got to do it. It's fun. I will say, especially that opening weekend, uh, because it kind of, it dies down a little bit uh, during the week. But that opening weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, is so, so fun. You have fans that come up from Colorado. You have fans that come over from Utah. You have a lot of Lakers yeah. fans, a lot of Suns fans. Uh, and it's just a really, really fun atmosphere. Really, really super fun atmosphere. And like you said, you know, you're there. Pat Riley's there. Jerry West is there. Any any of these LeBron James, you, Russell LeBron Westbrook. James, Giannis, they're just there hanging out and... Uh, you can sit as close to them, closer than you would ever have imagined, and watch their reaction to these games. Not to mention, get to see Cade Cunningham, number one overall pick, current yeah. Pistons rookie, who has uh, been impressive uh, at Summer League. You can watch him from 40 feet away, Jalen Green, who <laughs> might have the most swag of anybody in this rookie <laughs> <Max>. class. <laughs> Um, and not playing right now because of a hamstring injury, but has yeah. been uh, really, really fun. Pretty electric. 53% of his threes he's hitting right now. And, and Jason, to that point, you know, Cade Cunningham, we know, is the number one pick. Jalen yep. Green is the number two pick. And Jalen Green, as we know, played for the G League Ignite team. So he had that year of pro experience. You yep. could even tell with those two players. And, and not to say that Cade Cunningham is not going to have a great rookie season. I'm just saying... From Summer League, watching X's and O's like I watch, you can clearly tell that Jalen Green had more comfortability on the court having yeah. been in the system one year. P- like, talent aside, like, not saying that Jalen should have been the number one pick because Jalen has told us that Jalen should be the yeah, number Jaylen, one pick. Jalen believes, <laughs> believes it, but I'm just saying as far as comfortability, you can yeah. just see it on the court. As a player, what is it like? Like, have you been in these kind of situations where – you're playing either a scrimmage or on a team where there's just such a range of motivation. You have a lottery pick, like a top three, top five lottery pick. You also have, uh, you know, our second or third year player who's uh, working on, you know, whatever their next level of, of personal craft is. And then you'll have a bunch of, of, of players that are just trying to find a paycheck somewhere in the world in the basketball ecosystem. Like what, how do you, as a player, how do you manage all that? Because you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of incentive. That's the other thing with summer league is there's a lot of incentive for some of these players to just be like, I got to shoot it every time I get it because I got to <laughs> show whoever is here that I can do this. Um, how do you resist that? How do you, how do you deal with that on the court? Like, what is that like? Yeah, I talked about that. And it depends, Jason, in a sense of if you're going to the Cleveland Cavaliers, yeah, you Mm -hmm. might want to show that you can score, that you can carry the team, that you can basically do everything and you have that luxury. But when you're going to a team like, let's say, a Golden State Warriors, where they're a very highly skilled team, you know, their GM, Mm -hmm. Bob, came on there to talk about things that they were looking for. They're not looking. They're looking for people that can complement what they have. So the players really in summer league, Scouts don't care what you can do if it doesn't fit into their system, basically. So when you come in, like, that's how drafts work. Like, sometimes the number one draft pick 
Like, typically, it's going to be your overall talent, like whoever the best player is. But the further down you go in the draft, the six, seven, people want players that can fit into their system the best. And so Summer League is the same. So if, if you're a guy at Summer League, I saw some guys at Summer League, let's take Sacramento, who was the worst defensive team, not just this year in the history of the NBA. We know that. Sacramento yes. was the worst, <laughs> right? So then they go get Davion Mitchell, who yep. is known to be just this harasser on defense. He was killing it. I called the Sacramento game. He might have scored nine points, but what he did to the other team's offensive player, it was unbelievable. They could barely bring the ball up the court. They were turning over the ball. The opposing team that he played against had like 25 turnovers. That's the thought process. You know yeah. Sacramento needs defense. I'm a defensive guy. I'm about to turn up. So I think it's really what your team needs and how you're trying to fit. Yeah, that's the, uh, one of the things I love about Summer League is watching that kind of emerge. Uh, just one more time, talk about my Knicks because I watched every Summer League game. <laughs> uh, Miles Deuce McBride, like, I love to overreact to Summer League. Uh, of course, a lot of this doesn't matter, but I'm out there watching Miles McBride like, is this guy Kawhi? Could he be Kawhi? Harassing the <laughs> harassing the ball handler, just crashing the point of attack. He is everywhere in everybody's jersey, and he's making shots. Uh, it's fun. It's fun. And, of course, uh, some of this is not going to materialize on the actual uh, professional <laughs> basketball court during the season, but it is, it, it's so fun to watch stuff like this happen. All right, so Jason, we got to send a shout out to someone and not just any someone, a Husky someone who might have been having the greatest month of all time. That's WNBA superstar, champ, and former UConn stud, Brianna Stewart. She just led the U.S. women to a gold medal in the Tokyo Olympics. Pretty good. She was the MVP of the first inaugural Commissioner's Cup. I'll let you think about what I just said for a second because, by the way, as if, and I got to show up for the women, as if that wasn't enough. She just welcomed a baby girl into the world on August 9th. Shouts to Ruby May. I can't think of a better way to start a month. She's been killing it. And I need to, I would be remiss not to mention, she's coming off of an Achilles injury, which is yeah. one of the hardest injuries to come back from in all of sports. That's Brianna Stewie. I'm just saying Stewie out here doing some Stewie things, Jason. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a Husky and bleed blue. She's killing it. Yeah, it really, It there's a beautiful article uh, written by Kurt Streeter in the New York Times today. He quotes uh, Brianna saying, uh, of the birth of her child, it took my breath away, the most important moment of my life. Just what it, uh, what an incredible uh, couple of weeks she is having really amazing. And I mean, there were moments uh, during the Olympic run where it was just like much like KD to take away nothing from anybody, but maybe, maybe Brianna gets like one and a half medals or one, like a medal, like a sliver, a medal. Well, then Asia Wilson got to get about yes. two of them things there <laughs> yeah. because boy, did she carry a load? <laughs> she carried a load. Uh, but I can't, I just can't imagine what, what, what an emotional high this must be. And really one of the greats that we have that we get to watch play because she yeah. is, she's everything, a real purely modern basketball player in every sense of the world, a big that can do everything that can shoot, that could score. However, that yeah. can move the ball. Um, and then the added, I just can't like welcoming an actual human being into the world. I have a friend <laughs> who is a doctor 
is in her residency right now. She just did a residency um, on a Navajo reservation. And she doesn't want to talk like, she, you know, it's like, what are you guys up to? And I'm like, man, if I was delivering babies, I'd talk about it all the time. I'd be like, right. what'd you do today? You uh, sent some emails? Oh, yeah, I, I like brought two lives into the world. That's what I did. <laughs> Two whole humans. No, you're right. That's a job flex. Like, if I brought life into this world, yeah, you can't really tell me anything at this point because I, like, if they say, "Oh, how was your day?" Uh, it was Ruby May. Okay, that was my day. Ruby May, six pounds seven ounces. How was your day? Like, oh, you answered some emails. You're right. That's a flex. It's an unbelievable flex. It's like, yeah, I got a gold medal. (laughs) Plus, there's another person on this planet that is here uh, because. Uh, my partner and I are raising this person. <laughs> like amazing. it's just, it, it's just really amazing. Like a real inspiration for people. And then, not to mention that we talked about the Olympic gold. She, five days after winning a gold, she came to America. And I have to say that because you know there's a time difference that yeah, when you're big time in, difference. yeah, you're in Tokyo. You're trying to adjust to their time difference as fast as possible because you want to perform at your highest level. Then fast forward after you win your gold medal. Five days after that, the WNBA Commissioner's Cup is happening. The first ever inaugural WNBA Commissioner's Cup. All the Olympians played in it. There were three of them that came straight from Tokyo to play in it on the Seattle Storm team. Just went ahead and won that as well. Each player claimed a 30000 cash prize, which for the WNBA, that's a huge amount of money, bonus money. And then not only that, but Stewie went on to get her another 5K of milk money for her MVP award. We got babies now. We got diaper money we need. We need milk money. We need all of that. What Meek Mill say? Because my mama needs some milk money. My son needs some milk. They try to take my... But listen, Stewie is out here killing it is the whole point of it. I mean... She won a title for in the Russian League overseas is one of the bigger leagues. She won a title there, got finals MVP there, won that EuroLeague championship, final four of the EuroLeague MVP, WNBA title, finals MVP. I'm just saying, like, Stewie is having a year, and it's it's beautiful because, like, coming off of an injury, Achilles injury. So have to give up. You know, we do this. Had to give some snaps for for Stewie out here because she really, I mean, Ruby May. And shouts to Marta Shy guy, who is also a WNBA player that has retired now to raise her daughter, I'm sure. And shouts to her as well. That Stewie's fiance. Yeah, just a beautiful story. Um, let me ask you about the Commissioner's Cup, because obviously, like, this is this is a, a thing that is pretty prevalent in international soccer the the mid-season tournament it's something that the nba has looked into creating to give teams that don't necessarily have a shot at an nba title something else to play for and i think a cash incentive to me is the easiest and 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 most direct kind of motivator because like who wouldn't want to go out for an extra paycheck especially if you you know if it, it, you're looking at from an NBA's perspective where they're always talking about cutting games if you populate some of these rosters with G League guys who get a, a nice extra paycheck um do you like do you like the midseason tournament like does it feel normal to you i i i would yeah. love to see it there is the issue of games and the fact that they're 82 already is a lot um so they need to figure out a way to stagger it so that you're not putting more stress on players. But in theory, I love the idea. 
Yeah, I think for WNBA players and, and women's basketball players, for us, it's just normal. You know, we right. we play in the WNBA every summer and then we play overseas. Yep. And as you talked about, overseas, that's like a way of life. There's always cups. And honestly, that's some of your biggest money because it's the presidents of your clubs overseas. It's like this rivalry. So they want to <laughs> yeah. beat each other. So if you're playing for uh, uh, your your team and your president, like I, this is legit happened to me. I've been playing overseas in Russia where there's a lot of money flowing. And one of our presidents <laughs> has came into the locker room at halftime. I was like, we got to beat them. I'm giving $15,000 bonus right here on the spot. If we come back and win. So on top of the bonus that we already had, the president will just come in there and throw some money up to Whoa. try to get us to turn up and win the cup. So when you talk about cup time, that is money making time in my mind, because it's that it's that bragging rights that the presidents of your clubs want. So, yeah, that's it's normal life to us. And to see it here in the WNBA, like the players for one game winning thirty thousand dollars when players for a full season could be making sixty thousand. I mean, that's that's a huge bonus. Yeah, it's huge. what that sound means it's time for buzzer beaters where we talk about the stories we didn't cover in the show because of time renee what do you have okay so mine is kind of a buzzer beater rant and here i love it i love it (laughs) hear me out so it was my son's birthday august 15th and what thank you happy birthday boop and what he wanted to do was go to an escape room so i'm like oh yes i love it so he i was like 10 of your friends we throw them a little party at the escape room pizza cake and then we go to escape the room so they're in the room and let me just do my proud mom thing here all of his friends are in honors classes they're very like intellectual kids so they had made up their minds that they didn't want to get any clues and if people don't know what escape room is you go in the room you get all these hints and you, they don't want any clues, right? And so I, I gave, they had to escape Alcatraz. Well, they're going through the process and we get to the tape recorder. They don't even know how to, they've, they've never seen one of these things that actually have an actual tape that you put in. You know how you can rewind, press play. So yeah. I'm in the room with them and they're like, what is this device? And I'm like, stop playing. That's a tape recorder, right? Then they put a rotary phone in there and the kids don't know what these, a typewriter was in there. <laughs> the kids have no idea what oh this gosh. stuff is. And I was like, yo, y'all can't be serious. They're like, well, how can we hear the clues if we don't even know what this stuff is? So I'm laughing out loud at this point because I'm like, they thought they were so smart not to get a clue and don't even know what a typewriter is, a rotary phone. They didn't even know how to twist it and make it come back around. It was entertaining to me. Not to say, done to say the least, they did escape the room. They did have to use some clues. Shouts to his little crew. But I have to just say that it was a very interesting experience that when I told them that I had done homework on a typewriter before, the way that they looked at me, Jason, <laughs> I'm still uncomfortable with it. I, like To me, it was like something about it didn't sit right with me that when I said, yes, I've used a typewriter in real life, they looked like I was this ancient artifact like they oh, looked at me like i don't know how to explain it but i didn't like it so that's i had to get that off my chest shouts to my boot for his birthday junior but i don't like how his friends looked at me so i had to just get that <laughs> rant off of my chest those were not ancient artifacts those were things that we used a rotary phone i know how to use oh, that man. they've never seen it before they didn't even know how to put the tape in jason but i, I digress i watched <sighs> a tiktok video semi recently that was just like showing Gen Z kids like 
a VHS machine and being like, what is this? What do you do with it? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> We're just like, I had no idea. And I was like, man, just put, dig the grave now. I'll lay down in it and just put the, <laughs> put the dirt over my face. Um, and I'm, I'm in there with you. I, 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 my buzzer beater is going to be White Lotus. The finale was this past Sunday on HBO Max. Um, a really thought-provoking, funny, emotional show about uh, how centered whiteness is in our culture, about mm. the effect of privilege, about how people um, use their privilege without understanding it, about the kind of uh, intersection of uh, th- feeling like you are a woke person who understands the issues, but also enjoying the fruits of colonialism uh, through the lens of a Hawaiian resort on land that was snatched from the locals. It was just like a really, a a show that is super thought-provoking and that I think, and that had a finale that I think frustrated a lot of people because it was a lot of white people dump their problems uh, on the staff and local people at this Hawaiian resort and then go back home as if nothing happened. And while that was a frustrating watch, it also rang true to me in in very specific ways. And I think that and it was a show worth thinking about and worth uh, watching. If you haven't watched it, go ahead and stream it on HBO Max. I'm going to check that out for real. I like that. I'm going to check it out. That is it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube for exclusive video clips from this episode, plus my digital series, All Caps NBA, which airs every Friday. Check it out. Goodbye. Let's go! Take Line is a crooked media production. The show is produced by Carlton Gillespie and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Our contributing producers are Caroline Reston, Elijah Cohn, and Jason Gallagher. Engineering, editing, and sound design by Sarah Gibble-Laska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Your home is your place of peace. It's clean. It's welcoming. (sighs) And it's definitely not crawling with invading insects if you use Ortho Home Defense Max. Use it indoors on non-porous surfaces to treat and prevent cockroaches, spiders, and ants for up to 12 months. So your home can stay your place of peace, your work-from-home office, and your family's headquarters. Kill bugs inside, keep bugs outside, and love your home. Visit ortho.com for more.